My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the post credit pod. After a week or so of much-needed R&R, we are back with a lot to go through. I mean, we got our news. We got Dune coming out. What else do we got? We got uh, the Batman trailer, baby. We got the Batman trailer. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on. I mean, there is a lot going on, Eric. We, we you know, DC fandom went down. There's just so much in blockbuster tentpole entertainment happening right now, whether that be part of a huge franchise like the Marvel or DC, or whether that be a hopeful new franchise like Dune. You know, we're spoiled. I feel so great right now as a fan. I've spent the last few weeks talking about how stacked the end of your slate is. And last week, the reason that we took not, well, the reason the major release last week was the last duel. And part of me felt guilty that we had skipped it, but given its diabolical box office returns, (laughs) it appears that we made the right call. I think it made less than $5 million. Yeah. That's, that's the only way to describe what it, what happened in ticket sales. I still have yet to see the movie. I think I want to see it. It's Ridley Scott. It's a great cast. I know there's been mixed reactions, but Oof, you know, Matt Damon now has two sub $5 million debuts this year. I know it's COVID too, but you know, it it doesn't feel good. Yeah. And I, we just have so many, not, you know, first world problems, but we have so many screenings (laughs) and I just, I I just couldn't make it to the last dual one. And I was like, fuck, did we really miss a conversation? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, unfortunate for those guys. But you know, Ridley Scott's going to be fine. House of Gucci looks like it's going to slay. From people I trust, it's apparently Fuego. It looks fuego. So you know what? That does not surprise me. Yeah. All right, let's hop into the news because there's a lot to cover. First and foremost, Netflix has announced that Squid Game has become its most watched original series ever with a f- 142 million member accounts tuning in for at least two minutes within its first 28 days. Now, as I always say, Eric, always take Netflix's numbers with a grain of salt. But the show is very clearly a hit, and it far outpaced former number one show Bridgerton, which had 82 million accounts in its first 28 days. I mean, this is, for Netflix, mammoth success. How many subscribers do they have? Do they know? Do you know off the top of your head? Like yeah, a- so again, if we're taking the two-minute metric at face value, which is, you know, a little wonky, but hey, just to, for simplicity's sake, it's about 67% of their total global subscriber base. So... You know, if, if all of them are even sampling it and it's only two minutes for, you know, half of them, that's still pretty darn impressive. The reach, the engagement, the penetration, like damn yeah. Squid Game. And and I didn't read into the details, but I did, I believe, come across a headline that Netflix is tweaking the way that they present data. Isn't this yeah, a so, bit different than how they've done it? Yeah. So later in the year, they're going to move away from member accounts entirely. They used to do a member account that finished 70% of a piece of content. Then they switched to two minutes which is how YouTube and like iPlayer and other established New York times. That's how they do it. Now they're moving to hours watched. And so with each passing metric, there's a little bit gained and a little bit lost in terms of what we want to do in terms of analysis and insight. This creates a set of new problems while offering a set of new benefits. So it's very interesting to see how we measure Netflix popularity moving forward. Yeah. And just on squid game specifically, like, do you have confidence that they'll be able to shoulder this hype? Like, I feel like we're getting to a point where the conversation and the excitement around the show has become so grand that season two remotely living up to the first is almost an impossibility at this point. Yeah, you're not going to capture lightning in the bottle at the same time. But if you have like a decay rate, like if the numbers drop, you know, 20 percent, 
you're still talking about one of the biggest hits in Netflix right. original history. So yeah. they're in a good position to even suffer a, a downturn while still putting up a top five, top 10 original season two. Yeah, it, it really is incredible. When we had talked a few weeks ago, like what exactly does Netflix glean from this data? Like, what does it teach them? I'm not, I, I still don't even know <laughs> if there's a real answer here. You've got, I mean, I've had friends whose grandmas have texted them being like, I'm, I'm watching the squid games, yeah, you know, like the, 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 le- the level of pop cultural osmosis that it's gone through is, is unlike anything we really see, you know, I, I, there, there was a graph going around comparing it to the likes of the Witcher and Mando and the crown in terms of Google search volume. And it literally dwarfs them. A squid game is Oof. about 10 times bigger. And if you think about, and like Incredible. Tiger King, if you think about how much people were talking about Baby Yoda that first season and then wrap your head around the fact that it is pales in comparison to the conversation of Squid Game, I think that's sort of the most simplistic way to try to process in your head just how big of it is. That Baby Yoda in comparison is virtually nothing. <laughs> I cannot wait until we have a full month of Nielsen data so we can really compare Mando and uh, Squid Game. It's not an apples to apples comparison, but it'll give us a little bit more insight into kind of the heavyweights of the streaming era. Yeah. So really cool stuff on the horizon. All right. Elsewhere, Emily Blunt, who is a personal favorite of ours here on the Postcred pod, is in talks to join Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer opposite Killian Murphy as the famous theoretical physicist's wife. Now in real life, for anyone who didn't know, Oppenheimer was infamous for cheating on her multiple times and fathering children out of wedlock. So this does sound kind of like a a, a juicy role with a lot of agency that could potentially maybe net blunt her first Oscar nom. I don't know. know, She's talented. I hadn't thought about that until I saw your notes here. I think that's a great idea. And just in terms of blunt, you know, she's been doing a lot of blockbuster IP work in these last few years, which is great. She's got two $100 million domestic hits in the pandemic 2021. So good for her. A Quiet Place 2 and Jungle Ah, Cruise. Right. Go get your bag. Exactly. Absolutely. And I, while I wouldn't call this a return to drama, considering because Nolan in and of himself is a blockbuster franchise. So it will always have those massive summer film roots, but the role itself, as you said, does sound like it could be Academy fodder worthy. The only problem is I think this has a July release date and you usually don't associate Oscar nominations with roles in a summer blockbuster about bombing shit. So we'll see. But do I think that she has the talent to pull it off if the role is meaty enough for her? Absolutely. I'm loving these two leads. Cillian or Killian. I don't even really know, to be honest with you. Love to see him getting that headlining role in a major blockbuster project. I'm really excited for this one. I could already guarantee I'm going to enjoy it far more than I did Tenet. Yeah, we are uh, ultimately pretty down on Tenet in terms of Nolan fandom. And 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 I agree. I just can't wait for Oppenheimer. It's cool that he's going back to something. He He's simplifying it. He's like, all right, we've done a lot of sci-fi gimmicks. I'm sure I'll get back to that in the future. Here, let's just tell a human story about a big historical event. Totally yeah, and it. even I'm still, I would say... I mean, it's the scale is still big. It's World War II. It's no, but I was just going to say, this is almost even more... Because uh, while they're both technically war films, Dunkirk still had a massive scope and scale to it. This may be, even though, again, uh, as we've said, it's still a massive Nolan production outside of, uh, and I always forget the name, the one with Robert Williams and uh, Insomnia. Uh, this may seem like it'd be the mo- it may be the most personal and focused film he's done. So that seeing him pivot away from, you know, the tenants and the, and 
don't get me wrong. I'd love to see him get back to like a prestige-esque mind fuckery. But for him to like, you get the feeling that he's trying to once again, take his Oscar shot here, which I'm all for. And just fun fact, Insomnia is the only script he didn't have a hand in uh, writing. Of oh, his filmography. Oh, yeah, okay. A little, interesting. little tidbit for you right there. All right. James Gunn says his Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special will, quote, introduce one of the greatest MCU characters of all time, end quote. Now, we know Will Poulter has been cast as Adam Warlock in Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Do we think he's going to have a little bit of a tease intro in the holiday special before Guardians of the Galaxy 3? Do you think it's a different character? Or do you think this is one of James Gunn's go- uh, uh, jokes where it's going to be like a very niche, like, Marvel character who's like, aha, that's funny, but well, it's not the greatest He did caveat it that, like, greatest to him. Not in terms of, like, canon and, and the fandom, but in terms of how, what he sees as the greatest. Now, Okay, there we go. Holiday special. It's not going to be a movie, but I imagine it'll be like a 45-minute hour long. Yeah, it's probably something around there. I don't think that that provides the structure to introduce the warlock. So if I had to guess, I'd say that he's talking about something different. And as you said, probably something a bit niche. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And just for I've seen you know a lot of divisive reactions on Twitter over the last two weeks about Will Poulter's casting. Just want to remember, remind people when Carrie Fukunaga, who just is coming off No Time to Die, was going to do the It movie first, Will Poulter landed the role with what was described as an unbelievable audition that blew everybody away. So, you know, before everyone hops on this negative bandwagon, you know, don't sleep. Kids got talent. First of all, and everyone- And I say kid, he's a year younger than us. Everyone hopping on the anti-Will Poulter bandwagon is full of fucking shit. Why? Because he's got those goofy eyebrows and he was in Where the Millers. Like, what are the actual complaints about his work? I actually just started Dope Sick this past week, which he's in and he's throwing a new pitch that I haven't seen him throw yet. You know, he's playing sort of a straight laced pharma salesman with a guilty conscience about the fact that he's selling a pill that's poisoning millions of people. But, (laughs) you know, I have not seen anything from him that suggests he's not capable of this role. So to be up and and when has James Gunn ever gotten a casting choice wrong? So that's the best point right there. He crushes casting. I don't know much about the character. I am pretty sure adam warlock though is a relatively major marvel player as far as i can tell he's a big deal so does this mean he'll be i mean you got to assume that he'll be appearing in other things i think so and prior to guns firing he said uh guardians of the galaxy 3 was going to set up the next decade of cosmic marvel stories so when you look at the i mean again that that comment came years ago in like 2017 2018 but if, if we hold it at face value, it says to me that there's going to be a lot of through lines that stretch from Guardians of the Galaxy 3 and beyond. Right. Yeah, true. All right. Elsewhere, Eternals, it clocks in at two and a half hours or a little bit longer to be one of Marvel's longest movies. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Eric. You have seen it. I have seen it. So let me actually pull up my thoughts real yeah, quick. I don't see it until Monday. So and we have not talked about it yet. So I'm excited to hear what you think. So as you know, I went into it expecting it to be a top five MCU film, A, because of the scope of it and how it seemed to be just a bit of a different pace than the usual Marvel fare, B, because of the Chloe Zhao of it all, C, of the eclectic cast, and D, of course, the romantic sci-fi A plot that it- (laughs) That's your bag, man. That it seemed to have. And to be honest with you, I don't think it cracks my top five. I think it certainly is in my top 10. But I just didn't I just didn't think it cracked top five. I'll say the top 10 entry to me for any new Marvel release is a success in my book. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. 
And I'm relatively confident that you'll feel the uh, same way. My favorite part was the performances. They are all excellent, every single one. And then therefore those performances translate to characters that you're genuinely invested in despite their otherworldly godly status i won't get into what what happens but when something bad happened i literally said out loud to myself no i was in, you know i was I, I was invested i was legitimately I invested despite the fact that this is the first movie that we've spent time with them so when you walk away from a film saying to yourself man i fucking love those characters i think that that's a success in and of itself now my biggest issue was probably the pacing I wouldn't say it was slow in terms of boring, but given the sheer exposition required to explain Eternals and Celestials and Deviants and the way they all interconnect with each other, a lot of time is spent, A, putting the chess pieces in place, and then B, rallying, regrouping this 10-man team after 5,000 years. So just by its very nature, it takes momentum out of the plot, but it wasn't slow to the extent where I did my old watch check. Usually when you say something slow, for me, that's a, a death blow. But I want to <laughs> clarify that it's not slow in terms of boring. It just takes a while to set itself up. So then um, I have two questions quickly. Um, does that, bouncing off what you just said, does that position Eternals? And I know there's a little bit of flack for like, you're always looking ahead, Marvel, focus on the product at hand. But does that position a potential Eternal Suite sequel with Chloe Zhao returning? Oh, absolutely. As a true, yeah. Like, is it true, once the exposition's out of the way and everything, as a true, like, wow, this is even extra special. Yeah, you like to use the term throat clearing, and I wouldn't go that far. But even, I mean, the last shot is a direct, like, get ready for the sequel. Cool. So, yeah. Um, obviously, given that it's a, Zhao film. It's visually striking and added a new aesthetic to the MCU. While there are moments it looks like MCU film for a large part of it, it doesn't, which is great. And it's nice knowing that everything you're seeing isn't in front of a green screen. That visual creativity led to one of my, not my favorite favorite, but one of my favorite Marvel third act battles. I really enjoyed the third act. I think it was the strongest part. And that's Um, usually where a lot of these blockbusters can kind of fall off a cliff. Yep, yep. And so this isn't quite hole in the sky type. It still has that sort of general vibe (laughs) to it. But just the way that it's executed and then also your investment in the characters propels it above the mean. And it was also a lot funnier than I thought it would be, but not in sort of the usual contrived Marvel way where someone gets punched in uh, the face and makes a quip. But the humor is born out of the dynamics between the characters. And then finally, I would list which ones are my favorite, but I thought all 10 of them were dope. Particularly, I thought Kingo, Fastest, and Druig were all scene stealers in their own right. Uh, I was going to say, who's your breakout character? Now you're already getting to it. Yeah, so uh, what's his name? Barry Keogh? Barry I, I can't pronounce his last name, but I think he's talented. He's great as Druig. I, every time I've seen him, which is in Killing of a Sacred Deer and Dunkirk, he always played a bit of a weirdo. He's like a cool kind of badass type thing. So seeing him change up his vibe is great. Fastest is great. His um, That's Brian Tyree Henry, right? Who I think correct, is a phenomenal actor. Correct. And then uh, Kumal just Gianni, yeah. crushes it as Kingo. He's legit funny and you that. could see why they cast him. So overall, I loved it. Uh, I can't wait for the next one. As I say on this podcast a lot, I don't usually give things out of, a score out of 10. So when I say this is like a 7.5 out of 10, that's really a 7.5 out of 9. And that to me is a good movie. 
Okay, cool. And I so had you, said, you got me hyped. I had said to our buddy Jacob from Discussing Film that I think the both both the critic score and the audience score will hover in the low to mid 80s. All right, that's fair. You know, that's that's good enough for me. I'm excited for it. Everything you said just got me you know, jazzed up. And now I feel like I have a bit of a filter for what I might not like like about it, which is right. great. So yeah. thank you for that breakdown, Eric. <laughs> You're welcome, pal. All right, The Matrix Resurrections has been rated R for violence and some and some language. A pretty tame description, actually. I'm not gonna yeah, lie. Yeah, I, 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 uh, let me Google that right now. I'm curious. All rated R. Oh, all three of the all. Three I'm, of I'm 90 percent sure. You gotta, you gotta fact check me on that one right now. But I'm 90 percent sure. I don't even know where you find. Oh yeah, The Matrix Reloaded was R. Wow, I didn't realize that. Okay, sweet. Fuck yeah, because you would think given the. <laughs> Well, you would think given the way that the IP blockbuster landscape has changed in the 15 years that Warner would have moved heaven and earth to make this PG-13. So the fact that they didn't is definitely a positive sign. Yeah, I like that they brought, you know, I'm sure that was a stipulation of bringing all the original creative talent back. So that's cool. Uh, The trailers for Uncharted, Red Notice and Ambulance all dropped. A lot, lot of trailers going on recently. Yeah, yeah. And I think they all, I think each one of them looked all three of them look the same, and that's why I sort of grouped them. I can't tell you that any of them look good, but I think they all look fun. I'm excited for Red Notice, honestly. Yeah, no, it looks fun. It looks fun. I agree. I agree. I think that, A, I think it's going to be great to see Gal Gadot play a pseudo-villain, even though I doubt she'll end the film that way. And I undoubtedly think the best part of the movie is going to be the banter between your friend, The Rock, and... <laughs> Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, they have great chemistry dating back to uh, Hobbs and Shaw. And, and I've said in the tweet, I think Gal Gadot looks really cool as this badass version of like Danny Ocean mixed with the Jackal from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. So mm-hmm. I'm excited for it. Uh, Sony won the rights to the R-rated Jennifer Lawrence comedy No Hard Feelings in a heated Hollywood bidding war. She's reportedly getting around 25 million. Wow, you don't see those paychecks necessarily uh, that often. Wor- I mean, she she hasn't had a hit in a few years, so she could use one. And, and Sony's spending a lot of money on, on a comedy. Just, you know, listen, I love I think Sony does a lot of good things because they don't have a bunch of IPs, so they're kind of forced to. But, you know, you just don't know about this financial gamble. Oh, it's a comedy, though. I didn't realize that. Yeah. yeah. So, and so is uh, Don't Look Up, which is like a dramedy. Right. Uh, Tales of the Walking Dead, an episodic anthology, has been ordered at AMC. Uh, I guess I'm impressed the franchise is still going. Yeah, I mean, good for the fans of that show because they seem to be the (laughs) only people who care about that show. (laughs) Apple has ordered a comedy from the Ted Lasso writers starring Jason Segel. So Shrinking, that's the name of it, will follow the story of a grieving therapist who begins breaking the rules and being bluntly honest with his clients. This leads to some huge changes in his patients' lives as well as his own. So, you know, Ted Lasso writers, Jason Siegel, a, a talent I really like. I'm pretty intrigued by that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Charlie Cox on returning to Daredevil. Quote, you've got to be careful what you wish for. You come back and it's not as good or it doesn't quite work or too much time has passed. It doesn't quite come together in the same way. You don't want to taint what you've already got. If we never come back, you've got these three great seasons and our third season was our best reviewed. So the trajectory was up. I am tremendously proud and grateful for what we have. Do you think clever subterfuge or honest statement? Because there are a ton of rumors that he's coming back. I mean, this is the most extensively I think he's spoken on it, as far as I can tell. I think that he is, I'm convinced that he's back in the fold. I think what he's trying to prepare people for is that while the character, while he will be coming back as the character, the through line of that character's story that was established in those first three seasons 
will not be. I think that's fair. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be sad to see the kind of darker tone that more PG 13 violence go, but I think getting him back in the role and having him bounce off other MCU characters is going to be very effective. Yeah. Kevin Foggy said of the post credit scene in Venom 2, quote, there was a lot of coordination between Sony and Marvel and the Venom team and the No Way Home team. We worked together on it. So some people have said that's evidence that Venom's showing up in No Way Home. I think more so he meant that the No Way Home cast a crew was the one who shot the post credit scene. I think that's what he means. Yeah, we had talked about Venom showing up in No Way Home and we had discussed it a few weeks ago. And I think you put it best. He may show up in the post credit scene of that film. But I think, and also what makes it difficult is that he's an anti-hero, right? So it's not like he could just show up and fight Spidey. You have to explain why he's choosing to fight Spidey. Why, despite the fact that he, him and Eddie Brock have been trying to be quote unquote heroes that that now they're like, well, well, let's go fucking eat this teenager, you know? So I think that's a little, (laughs) that's a little, (laughs) that's a little too much to do in no way home, especially considering everything else that we know is coming. So do I think he could be referenced or pop up in a post credit scene? Absolutely. But do I think he's going to factor into the events of the film? Not really. Let's Go Eat This Teenager is the young Hannibal Lecter prequel series I didn't know I needed. (laughs) So thank you for that quote. That was great. Um, Part one of Ozark's fourth and final season drops on January 21st. I'm still behind on Ozark. Really good show. But, you know, I I haven't completed the available episodes yet. Please don't skewer me, film Twitter. I mean, I think Ozark is a Mount Rushmore Netflix series. Yeah, probably. I would say probably. I, I would need a list in front of me, but to say it's not one of their top five originals ever, yeah, probably. Yeah, so I'm hyped for it. Bateman, and more so than that, I'm excited to see what Bateman does once he's done with this. Great. You know he wants to do more directing. He's directed oh, absolutely. a couple feature films. He's a smart guy. And he's absolutely. also, you know, his family is a, a historic Hollywood family. He's been acting since he was six. He knows right. the game. Right. Uh, Disney has delayed various projects. Boo! Dude, I got headphones on, man. Come on. Sorry, (laughs) sorry. My eardrums are destroyed. (laughs) I agree with the sentiment, but I can't hear for the rest of the day. I'm sorry, dude. Uh, It's okay. (laughs) Doctor Strange 2, Thor 4, Black Panther 2, Indiana Jones, The Marvels, Ant-Man 3, and various untitled projects have also been delayed or removed from the schedule. Foggy says, it's production shifts and changes, and because we have so many slots, we can just shift slots. Yeah, it's a bummer. I mean, I I get it. They're giving them more time to, to get it right, and that's fine. But it's a bummer. We want our content. Absolutely. Sooner, I mean, I was really looking forward to the Batman and Doc Strange too over the course of like three weeks. I was really excited for that. So it's definitely a bummer. I mean, they uh, they pushed back Indy Jones five like a full year at this point. I just you know, you and I I think have both said we're not huge indie fans. Uh, James no, Mangold not. makes me very intrigued. I will say that 100% agree. But at the same time, he's going to be like 84 when it comes out or something like that. I don't yeah, know. I can't I remember mean, how old he's going to be. He but. was going to be 80 if it came out next summer. So, yeah, he'll be like Jeez. north of 80 at that point. Yeah. Uh, all right. And then lastly, this su- last past Sunday was the Succession season three premiere. Uh, I really, really liked the episode. And I've seen the first seven. You guys can check out my review on Observer. And I'm also going to be doing weekly uh, recaps and everything uh, at Observer. But I think it really sets the tone for this season and you guys will see as the episodes go because particularly for the first five, it is all ramp up, ramp up, ramp up, strategy, action. We're going head to head war. So I really thought this episode did a great job of establishing the battle lines and telling us, hey, at least for the the first good chunk of season three, this is going to be mano y mano. 
Yeah, uh, we have we do a lot on this show. So unfortunately, I'm not sure how much time we're going to be able to commit to succession. That said, we will where we can. My biggest takeaway is that for the first time in the series, Logan Roy seems like he thinks he could lose. And I think that's in a very exciting place for him to be in because he yeah. was already a monster. And now that he's <laughs> even further cornered, I could only imagine the depths that he will reach now. And just in case anyone is curious, Succession, the season three premiere, drew over 1.4 million viewers across all platforms, marking a series high and the best premiere night of any HBO original series since the launch of HBO Max last year. Mm. And so so that already live, you know, in, in, in that debut night range, given how streaming and, and DVR and all that has played a role as live plus seven viewership. So live plus who watches it in the first week of availability. So those numbers will continue to climb. Well, I'm sure we'll get interesting updates there. But long story short, it's a hit. Who would have thunk? Yeah, and it's starting to cross into the mainstream in in the sense that my parents have asked about it. All right, do we want to now move into what you're probably most excited for? And that is breaking down the Batman trailer. Fear is a tool. When that light hits the sky, it's not just a call. It's a warning. Well, I feel bad that it's taken us a few days, but because of Dune coming out today, we were kind of in a weird spot. Do we record Monday and then record a new Dune pod? Well, we wound up doing is just doing it now. And look, man, this and I tweeted this and I, and I said this almost word for word. I do not say this lightly. This movie looks like, just from the trailers, just from what I've seen so far, looks like it has the potential, I'm not saying it's going to be, the potential (laughs) to be the best Batman movie ever made. I genuinely believe that. Because I think when we talk about The Dark Knight, we talk about it as a filmmaking feat in and of itself, but the Batmaning of it all isn't all that great. You love the Joker and you love the plot, and this was the case across Nolan's three films. The Batmaning in and of itself, I always felt lack. That does not appear to be the case in this trailer, which excites me a ton. I think after Batman Begins, Bruce Wayne took a backseat to each successive villain in terms of who is really the main character of their respective movies. Right. And I think, you know, again, as a trilogy launcher, the Batman's probably going to be very Bruce Wayne focused. We'll see if that stays in other ones. But it certainly seems to be all about his psyche here, like you said. And and that's high praise coming from you, our resident Batman expert. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's dive into our, our kind of beat for beat recap review of this trailer. In a shot that could be ripped right out of David Fincher's seven, seven, we open on this gray, rainy, dark and dingy alley with Paul Dano's Riddler seen at the counter of a greasy hole in the spoon diner. SWAT teams are swarming the building. He's being arrested, but not before leaving an ominous question mark in his coffee. The calling card begins. First of all, you had a great tweet about that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I just imagine... Paul Dano at the corner, at the counter, and the barista being like, are, are you, you sure you want a, a question mark? Not like a, a smiley face or anything. And like the Riddler in that moment, be like, yeah, 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 trust me. It's gonna be so cool. Police are gonna show up in five minutes. It's gonna be awesome. <laughs> I was like, and you know, that conversation must have been hilarious. So I just want to make a point about how you said that the shot looks like it could be, that first shot looks like it could be ripped out of from seven and even has a bit of a Blade Runner-esque feel to it. And I think that this is a good point to point out the DP. Greg Frazier, 
Now, this is a man who may not come across uh, and may not have the same name brand as a Roger Deakins, but his work over the last 10 years includes Killing Them Softly, Zero Dog 30, Foxcatcher, Rogue One, Vice, and Dune. So aesthetically, this guy is obviously throwing high, high heat because I think this movie looks great. I'll touch on it in a bit as we go through. I think they're making some smart choices with lighting, both differentiate the aesthetic and to solve one of the bigger Batman on film problems that the character has had throughout the years. Now, as for the Riddler, Paul Dano as a serial killing Jigsaw-esque version may be the best casting in the entire film. This man- And I just want to remind people that uh, Jonah Hill was offered Penguin and wanted to play the Riddler and Matt Reeves was like, nah. (laughs) Because, I mean, look, Paul Dan- I think Paul Dan is a great actor, and I agree completely. His casting looks so good, and we don't even see his face. Yeah, smart, which I like. But my point about Dano is this man exudes murderous creep vibes in everything he's in. <laughs> so to just weaponize that as the Riddler and to keep the aura around him still shadowed in mystery was a very smart move. And I believe they did something so- similar with Heath Ledger's Joker, too. Mm. So it- it's, you know... Uh, in canon kind of tactic for Batman, which I think is cool. Yeah. Uh, I-, I was very much digging the immediate neo-noir vibes of this. You know, we are very much getting this kind of grungy detective story. And I think just in this trailer alone, it's it's clear that Matt Reeves is using very deliberate visual language. You know, he is trying to make a statement with the aesthetic, with the lighting, you know, with the color grading, with the shot composition. And I think it looks different than what we've seen before. And we're going to get to this in a second, but I'm excited just for that alone. Now, I still like the teaser more than I like this one, but I said in a tweet, I still think this is better than 95% of trailers we, we get. I mean, I still thought this was pretty next level. Damn good. Fascinating to me because this one showed Batman in action, which I fucking loved. Yeah, and, and the Batman in action looks good. We're but, gonna get you, to that. but you more prefer like a tone setting vibe. Yeah, yeah. Like, so uh, I always kind of point to this as my go-to example. The first teaser they released for American Sniper, Bradley Cooper, Clint Eastwood, was just that one scene of him lining up a sniper shot. It wasn't like a a succession of shots across the whole movie. It was just one tonal vibe, one single moment that spoke to the rest of the film. I love shit like that. Yeah, And, you know, of course, the, the teaser for the Batman, the first one didn't do that, but... It was definitely more of an atmospheric move than a plot move. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I'm still stoked. All right. Steam beats off the glaring hot bat symbol as rain pelts down from the sky. We hear fear is a tool from the voiceover. When that light hits the sky, it's not just a call. It's a warning. We get shots of this new Gotham, which to me quickly feels like a modernized Tim Burton gothic nightmare crossed with Christopher Nolan's more industrial Gotham and the nameless rainy city from the aforementioned seven. Batman beats the ever-loving shit out of the face-painted gangmangers. He takes bullets to the chest and keeps moving. Oh, that was cool. That was just a, this early middle part of the trailer was so cool. Well, share your thoughts here, because I have something that I want to play off of what you say. Okay, so so I think from a conceptual standpoint, I loved the little bit about it's a warning because that's kind of tacitly confirming that Batman is a domestic terrorist. You know, he's infringing on civil liberties. He's acting outside the law. He's answering to no one. And I genuinely think Matt Reeves is suggesting in his own way that having a Batman is not the healthiest thing for society, which I love because that 
spins a new perspective. It inverts the typical Batman movie point of view. It makes Bruce Wayne's anger more significant to the character and more dangerous to the ultimate mission of Batman. And as Matt Reeves has said, this is year two. He's still figuring out how to be Batman. So all of that combining in a swirl of, of personal and quote unquote professional and raising the idea like, hey, probably not good for Gotham that we have this guy running around beating the shit out of people. I think that's awesome. I think it's bold. I think it's new territory for a very familiar character. And while I agree with what you said, I just hope that they don't. And while I'm all for uh, meditation on Bruce Wayne's psyche, I don't want this to turn into Batman is actually the bad guy type thing. Later I don't think in, they're going to go that far. No, but later in the trailer, they show a shot of Selena Kyle being horrified by his violence. And I just don't want them wading too far into the Batman is actually a sociopathic psycho narrative when really I like that. But the the Batman mythos is ultimately selflessness. I don't he says it in this. I don't care what happens to me. And despite how rage and fuel driven that is, psychopaths and sociopaths don't act out of selflessness. And I want that to remain a key to the fact that while his methods may not be the most kosher. His mission is an honorable one. And I just worry with the old, does the world actually need Batman type thing that we'll be wading into a conversation of if he were to not exist, would Gotham be better? Which is something I've always disagreed with because Gotham in and of itself is what gives birth to him. So I do think it's brave and bold. And as you said, I do think it will provide a little bit more dramatic uh, meat for Pattinson to sink his teeth into I'm just worried in terms of how far they actually take that line of thinking. I, I get that. But I think the Tim Burton movies, the Nolan movies, even the Bat Flack movies, to a certain degree, were all about self-sacrifice. He is sacrificing elements of his personal life to be Batman, to be selfless. We've gone there. We've seen that. So seeing a completely True. divergent viewpoint that maybe then morphs in the sequel and the, and the trilogy capper into something more altruistic, that's a journey I'd like to see because- Starting from this position of like, oh no, Batman's bad. I like that. That's interesting to me because then we can get the Prince Zuko, the Darth Vader turn towards more good, True. which everybody loves. True. The and Kylo I had, Ren arc. But I have seen that this film is going to firmly establish his no kill rule. I can see how uh, Selena Kyle's horrified reaction might might lend itself to something of that nature. Right. <laughs> From here, Batman visits Riddler in jail. And notably, we do not get a clear shot of Riddler's face this entire trailer. What have you done? Batman barks at him. Explosions go off all throughout Gotham. This is a powder keg and Riddler's the match, he says. Boom. Then we get shots of Zoe Kravitz, Selena Kyle, who looks like she fits the role like a glove. Absolutely. Batman have immediate chemistry and they start. And if they start this movie as villains, it's very clear based on this trailer that they're edging into vigilantes with benefits very soon and i thought that was a great little visual display of of character dynamics absolutely and while it's not quite the famed romantic sci-fi it goes without saying that i'm <laughs> all for a batman franchise that focuses on and fleshes out the doomed romance between those two because what it gives batman is something to lose he doesn't have a lot of that he's got Alfred lost everything already. Technically. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, outside of I mean, he says it himself. He doesn't he doesn't even value his own life. Giving him the fear of losing someone he cares about adds a dynamic to the character that he needs, because otherwise he's just this brutish machine. No feelings, no nothing, just mowing through Gotham. But 
the risk of losing Catwoman, whether it be through someone else harming her or her being so horrified by him that she fucks off, that adds something that this character, and especially in this world where, as you've said, they seem to be leaning towards, hey, this dude is not really the best thing. Giving him further humanity through romance will help balance that out. Yeah, and it endears us. It endears him to the audience more when he has something that we can relate to. And, and like we said, Zoe looks like she could be a great addition to the Catwoman role. It's previously been played by Michelle Pfeiffer, Halle Berry, and Hathaway. So some heavyweights. And it's going to be really cool to see Zoe put her own spin on that. I've already, uh, uh, I've already swapped my Twitter banner photo to that shot of them on the roof. <laughs> that's hysterical. I'm going to go check that out as soon as we're done here. That's, I love that. Uh, this section of the trailer, too to me, felt felt very much like this movie is a murder mystery conspiracy. It seems to me, even though we don't get as many hints in this trailer, Riddler's storyline definitely could feel like it feeds into or sets up a Court of Owls type of turn in the next film, as you and I discussed when the first teaser came out. Yep, totally agree. And I believe that, and well, there's a shot later that we'll talk about that I not saying that the Court of Owls are in it, but something about it gave me that vibe. Cool. I like how this next part, if this continues, Alfred warns, it won't be long until you have nothing left, which is a very serious thing for his father figure to say. Uh, then Batman is, Bruce Wayne is seen standing in the middle of a Riddler puzzle that includes branches of, quote, the sins of my father, question mark, quote, no more lies, Coulson, quote, Mitchell, and quote, renewal is a lie. Batman then says the probably the best line of, of the film that we just discussed. I don't care what happens to me. This was a cool bit of, you know, cluing into the mystery. And I just want to throw out there quickly. Peter Sarsgaard is playing D.A. Gil Coulson. So that's one hint that we can kind of get out of there. And because he's playing D.A. Gil Coulson, who we don't we don't know who that is. We can pretty much guarantee he dies in this movie, correct? Yeah, and I mean, you could guarantee he's going to have an intern or some shit named Harvey, you know? Yeah, yeah. Harvey, um, give me those papers. I'm like, that's right. it. This is the Batman motif that I am here for. Victory at all costs, even if that cost is his own life, right? Batman values the lives of those in Gotham City more than his own. And that is, as I said, the direct opposite of how a sociopathic psycho would think, which is why I'm railing against the exploration of that, because you really can't have it both ways. Somebody who is that cognitively broken wouldn't think like this. And that is the Batman that I love. I don't know if the uh, I don't care what happens to me is so is as selfless as you're saying. I think it's more so uh, a reckless anger. He's just out on his vengeance. He doesn't give yeah. a shit if he dies in the process. True, but we'll it's say. not like but it's not like he's doing it for thrills. <laughs> you know, it's it's not like he's just going skydiving with no parachute. You know, like he's actually doing it for the good of the city. We'll see. <laughs> I, I, I could see it being starting off more as a kind of personal vendetta and morphing into the good of the city. Right, right. All right, then we see Batman just beating the shit out of more folks. Colin Farrell's Penguin continues to be impressive. He absolutely unrecognizable in that makeup and fat suit. He seems like a more mid-tier gangster working his way up with the potential for more as this trailer has kind of positioned it. Catwoman then says, maybe we're not so different. Who are you under there? As she kind of gently caresses his cowl. She jumps off a roof. There's a quick shot of Batman jumping down from a ledge. Everyone's jumping off something, doing some crazy ass, you know, gymnastics. It's super cool. 
Yeah, so this is a shot that I cued on and on because as Catwoman jumps, Batman appears to be being held down by what looks like Gordon or Gordon is trying to get him off somebody. Oh, okay, so, I didn't catch that. So whatever this is, whatever's going on here is probably some third act set piece fucking magic. <laughs> because, you've got, because, because you've got three of the main characters converging. Kyle is clearly at this point fighting with Batman. So they've already established romance at this point. Whatever she was doing was without Batman. Like he was preoccupied with something else and she was off potentially heroing on her own. Right. So I want to zoom out for a second because I really like the idea of not necessarily seeing the villain origins, but seeing how they grow into what becomes the best rogues gallery in the superhero world. So like I said, Penguin, he is seemingly a long play right now. And Colin Farrell has said he's only in five or six scenes. It's a talented actor attached to a role that could go on for multiple movies. That's intriguing to me. That's the type of future film setup world building that isn't distracting from the plot at hand or hand-fisted. You know, when I look at BVS, Everything in that felt so shoehorned into the point that it absolutely took away and detracted from the mm. main plot. This feels, based on just the trailer, more organic, more fitting. This is the way you build a universe and set up future threads. Again, we got to see how it is in its entirety, but based on the trailer alone, I think they're doing it in a seamless fashion. Oh, there have been reports, though, that Colin Farrell's Penguin is going to get his own show. Oh, really? Where, where were those reports? I can't remember. That it was about a month That's or so. Colin Farrell, Penguin, HBO Max, and they were oh, like, "Was that when everyone was like, oh, so Gotham?" And they right, but those were uh, these were legit reports. Yeah, I'm seeing okay, it cool. here from Variety on uh, September 13th. So well, then, yeah, there, there you go, world building. Yep. All right, Batman is getting lit up by machine gun fire in a dark alley, and it's not phasing him at all. And just me personally, I'd be shook if I emptied a clip at a guy and nothing happened. I'm vengeance, he says, as we saw first in the earlier teaser. He fires up the badass-looking Batmobile. There's quick shots of varying scenes throughout the movie. Gotham, Riddler, what's black and blue and dead all over. Commissioner Gordon, Batman seemingly leading the face paint crew underground. Maybe a nod to Dark Knight Returns. Who knows? We get shots of Selena Kyle, shots of Alfred. Penguin thinks he's beat Batman in a car chase, but nope. The Batmobile comes flying through a rain of fire to fuck up Penguin's day something good. And the trailer ends with an overturned Penguin seeing Batman approaching him through the flames upside down, which I thought was a nice little nod to. He's a bat. He's upside down. Oh, you smart son of a bitch. That went right <laughs> over my head. So I, I, I really like that. And I think particularly this last section, this is the angry Batman. So steopathic Batman, a Batman who seeks a temporary reprieve from his own pain by inflicting pain on others. You know, a Batman who is yet to learn any self-control, which again, all this is pretty darn cool. I'm, I'm up for a uncorked Batman who may not be very good at his job just yet and is letting the personal impair the impartial. And I think that's the character journey we see in the Batman. So let me just zoom in on one shot and then I'll just give my larger thoughts. And you had touched on it. You call them the face paint crew. There's a shot where he's like trudging through water with a red flare and behind him, what looks to be like 20 to 25 people. But usually when Batman is surrounded by that many people, he's being attacked. 
They don't they don't seem to be attacking him. They they're seem following to, him. They seem to be following him. And that is what and that's the shot I brought up earlier that I think small, small chance. But could those actually be court of owl masks? Because are they like are they leading him somewhere to meet Talon or something? Just the the way in which they were surrounding him but not attacking him was very odd to me. And that fact that he was leading them, you know, like the court of owls, they like they coax Batman to them. So, and that was sort of the vibe that I got from that specific shot. And I think that that shot is going to tell us a lot about the future, like what's going on in this film and then what will go on in the films going forward, because it just seemed so out of place from everything else that was going on. I think that would be really cool. I wonder because the Court of Owls are typically the high society of Gotham, what they're doing in a like gross, like sewer looking type environment, but you know, that can be their peons. That can be like the, the right, low exactly. level spies on, on yeah. the street. Like just like in the John Wick world, all the homeless people are actually super well-trained, super spies. Right. right. Uh, so I, I would love that because clearly, I mean, that, that is a unique image. Why are people following Batman? A whole group of people, not in an attacking way. Yeah. That, there has to be something more there. Yeah. Uh, and now just more general thoughts. This seems to be taking heavy inspiration from the Arkham games, particularly the suit and combat, which frankly, those games are one of the best Batman stories I've ever engaged with. And the fact that they included the visual of bad, I mean, I have been waiting to see this in a Batman movie forever. Bad guys just unloading a clip on him (laughs) is a huge step forward for the character's general believability. You know, like he would always be dodging and dipping and you would just think like somebody just get a fucking machine gun and unload on this guy. So to see them (laughs) finally do that is a step forward. Now, I know the snarky among us will say, just shoot him in the face. And I just want to say to those people, I think you suck. Whatever. Also, go to a gun range. You know how hard it is to hit a moving car- target? What, whatever happened to suspension of disbelief? I mean, good God. So I do think the fact that we're going to be seeing Batman take damage is massive. Um, I love the industrial tactical look of his suit. How he's got like gadgets hanging off his legs and all that. And then my final general thought, and this may sound blasphemous to some, and even though I doubt it unfolds this way because just the nature of the IP world, I would be totally okay if Joker never pops up in these films, especially especially if Joaquin Phoenix returns Joker Part 2. Batman famously has the best rogues gallery out there. We've seen the Batman versus Joker thing over and over. And villains like the Court of Owls or Hush or Hugo Strange or hell. Or Deathstroke, like you've said. Deathstroke or even Mr. Freaks, even though he's usually a... uh, leans towards silly sci-fi those characters viewed through reeves's sensibilities and aesthetic would be incredible so i really hope they use this franchise as an opportunity to give us different villains there are they're already seemingly reclaiming the riddler you know for the last 25 years everyone has just thought of jim carrey's goofy performance but people are going to be leaving this film thinking the riddler is actually fucking terrifying and i hope as this franchise continues they continue to do that. Yeah, I mean, this Riddler is like Zodiac BTK killer style. You know, yeah. it's not a cartoon whatsoever. <laughs> right. So I, I agree. I, I'd be perfectly fine if Joker never shows up. Now, yes or no, do you think Joker shows up in this trilogy? 
Yes. Particularly given that, yeah, particularly given that there's a GCPD and now a potential Penguin series, they're building out the whole world. But I would hope it's not till till the third one. I really want, I really, really want to see new villains on screen. That is what I really yeah. want to see. And there, and like you said, you just gave a, a quick list. There are some really good villains that deserve either a comeback or finally their 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 live action debut. Yeah, like Hush, I think would fit right into this world. Red Hood would be cool in the future. In the yep, future, absolutely. I don't know how you know it fits into the the young Batman thing, right, but right. at some point that would be cool. Right. All right. Well, if you guys, we're going to obviously give you, give you the names again, but if you guys have any thoughts, theories, comments on the Batman, hit us up on Twitter at postcred pod at Eric Italiano at great underscore Catsby, because I think you can safely guess we're going to be talking about the Batman quite a bit over yep. the next few months. Oh, I can't wait. There is no movie that I am more pumped for than this one. So, but another movie we were both pumped for as we segue into our next topic seamlessly is Dune. The outsiders ravage our land. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. And Dune hits HBO Max tonight, Thursday tonight, and it hits theaters, uh, I believe, starting 7 to 8 p.m. something tonight uh, and, you know, rolls out this weekend. So we want to get into a, a light discussion. We're going to break it down into a, a fun little game of if then. So if blank, then blank, where we kind of give you a few comparisons and, and give you a few signposts to, so you can understand whether or not you're going to enjoy Dune. We're going to give our quick 30 second reviews. We're going to ask a few key questions about the movie. And then I'm a book reader. Eric is not. He's going to ask me a few questions to maybe flesh it out a little bit more because I'm sure the fandom listening right now is split the 50% book readers, 50% not. And just before we dive in, warning, this will be a light spoiler chat. We won't be getting into the nitty gritty of the plot, frankly, because a lot of it went clear past my head. But just (laughs) in general, while we're not going to be telling you the specifics, we will be talking about the larger story beats. Yeah, I I don't think anyone has to be too too fearful in this spoiler discussion. I'm certainly not going to weigh into direct description but uh you know just in case you want to go in completely blank all right you want to start us off eric because you have a a couple list of good ones and i just added a couple shall i okay so if you're expecting a propulsive action-packed epic then dune will probably bore you (laughs) that is the state that i felt i thought that for all its size and scope there weren't many set pieces that lived up to that size um that said, if you enjoy the methodicalness of world building and lore, then I think you will enjoy Dune. And I, the best way to describe this is it sort of reminds me of RPG games. Do you know what those are? Big? Yeah, role-playing games. Yeah, so th- these worlds are usually expansive and you got to build up your character and make weapons and cook food. If you have the patience for the scope of those games, then you will likely enjoy Dune more than someone who plays like a narrative, straightforward, uncharted type of game. Yeah, I agree. There, there's room in here for people to move around in terms of mythology and culture and fictional history. So I, I think that's an apt comparison to an RPG. All right, my quick two. If you enjoy royal court machinations set within gorgeous shots, you'll like Dune because it is essentially an elongated episode of Game of Thrones that is very much about the political jockeying of the Duneverse, the major house. Duneverse? That, that, that's like an official term. Oh, for the love of fucking God. <laughs> well, because there's like 20 books in this series. Oh, man. 
Okay, so, sorry. So it's all about the major houses basically trying to one up one another and basically gain status and power and acclaim within the Imperium, which is you know run by the the Galactic Empire, for lack of a better term. Mm. Uh, if you are expecting a complete story with a real sense of resolution, you will be disappointed. This is famously part one of part two. Having said that, because breaking up the Dune book makes a lot of sense. Having said that, there is a very much a lack of resolution. It just kind of ends. I want to say, forget about the ending in and it of itself. You just said, if you're expecting a complete story, to not have one to me is a cardinal sin of filmmaking. At the end of the day, it, it, it's a storytelling medium. That's what it, that is the purpose of movies. So if you're making a movie where you're openly saying, yeah, it has no story. And, and on top of that, it doesn't finish. That is a, that is a dire, dire indictment of the movie to me. I watch movies. Yes, I love visuals and set pieces, but I watch movies for stories and character. I just watched Benedict Cumberbatch star in the electrical life of Lewis Wayne last week, which is a story about an early 20th century painter who made, who painted silly cats. And I was enthralled because it was a great story and a great character. That is what I'm looking for. So to so eschew those things in this film lost me. And The Verge, The Verge's review of this film summed it up perfectly. Their title was putting an epic franchise ahead of an epic story. And that, to me, perfectly summarizes my problems with this film. Dune is my... I I think it was a little bit more favorable in the sense that I compared it not quite as well, but to the first Lord of the Rings movie in which the overarching plot is not solved by the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, but we have seen a significant character journey. And I do think that's the case here, having said that, because I'm definitely higher on the movie than you. I'm still not, you know, 10 out of 10. I I do think it is a bit abrupt, the ending. And certainly, particularly for someone who doesn't know what's coming, a a disappointing end point. And not only is it abrupt, but in comparison to the scale of the film, the, the ending is so micro. So it just felt like a sort of backwards (laughs) construction of how you're supposed to make a compelling movie. I I definitely liked it more than you. And we're about to get into each of our 30 second reviews. But I I think I I walked into it hoping this was truly a mind blowing experience. And to a certain extent it was. But because of the storytelling shortcomings that I agree with uh, that you've laid out a bit already. Didn't didn't quite get to the, the level I was hoping for, even though I walked away pretty darn happy. All right, let's get into our 30-second review so we can kind of condense what our, what we're trying to say here. All right, to the tweets that I put out, and I said, this is a painful thing to say. Dune is my least favorite Villeneuve film. Um, the only one that, was compa- that I would say is in its neighborhood is Enemy, which I still really enjoyed, but just for the, by the sheer scope of it, it just, it, it, it naturally is lower on that list. It's too slow. It's too cold. The plot is predictably dense. And the set pieces, or should I say, lack thereof, do nothing to stem the tide of boredom, especially if you're a non-book reader like me. There are zero character arcs to sink your teeth into, which, except for, as you and I talked about, Rebecca Ferguson's, who I think she she probably has the meatiest role. Um, Jason, shockingly, Jason Momoa's Duncan Idaho was my favorite part. Visuals and the world building was all on point. But other than that, my honest feeling walking out of the theater was disappointment. I tried to picture my dad or regular movie folk sitting through this, and I just 
cannot see it. The way that Netflix likes to quantify things by, oh, they watch for two minutes. I have a hard time picturing the average HBO Max viewer who sees Dune and big, bold titling on the homepage screen, starting it and making it past the first hour. I think it may, may, because I think I'm generally colder on it than most people. I think it's going to have one of the all-time critics' audience score disparities. I think that the critics are going to love it, but I think audiences won't be as high on it. And I'm truly fascinated to see what the average viewer thinks of it, because I like to think of myself as an average viewer with a little added knowledge of the ins and outs of film. And I just, it just never grabbed me. And this is coming from a man whose top, whose fifth favorite film of all time is Blade Runner 2049. So it's not like I am an anti-Villeneuve fan. It's not no, like I'm an anti- it, It's not like I'm an anti-dense sci-fi fan based off of some project that happened 30, 40 years ago. I was enthralled with that shit the last time he did it. But that, <laughs> but that film, you were rooting for K the whole time. In this movie, I didn't really give a fuck about Paul. And not only that, but I didn't care about the story that he was involved with. So to me, when you deliver on world building and cinematography and all that, that's great. But when you fall short on characters and story, as I said before, to me, that, that's a cardinal sin. I think even though I disagree in a lot of places, that is a fair take. And I think we talked about it afterwards when I got out. The average everyday viewer may be closer to you than closer to me. So I walk out, I think right now, and I have not yet seen it for a second time, but on my first, I think my, my rating is like between an 8.2 and an 8.5 out of 10. It's right in that kind of range. We're going to see how it goes after we watch it this weekend, weekend. But to me, and I wrote about this for Observer, it is a masterfully composed epic whose sense of awe and ambition is unrivaled in 2021 movies but whose story is going to leave non-book readers completely fucking lost. It is so beautiful, so gorgeous, such a distilled visual medley of just unbelievable shots and composition that help tell the story that is grafted onto an extremely esoteric story. If I had not known what I knew about the, the, the plot, and we're going to get into this more in kind of our ask a book reader questions, I would not have understood what Paul's challenge was, what the journey he was going through in terms uh, of the kind of world building lore that was surrounding him and where his end point of the movie is. So I think this movie, if you see this on the big, big screen, I am hard pressed to believe you won't have your breath taken away. I actually do believe the set pieces and the visuals are unbelievable. But I also agree because of the kind of lack of warmth. It's a bit cold, it's a bit detached, it's a bit remote. Some of the characters are hard to wrap your arms around. That it's telling that the most compelling moments of this movie are when characters aren't on screen. When it is Denis Villeneuve reveling in just this beautiful scope of a fantastical galactic world that doesn't reminisce uh doesn't look like our, our own at all so i think you go into it with an unbelievable sense of world building and mythology i think people will want to explore this world more i think it will drive people to kind of uh research the universe and get more into it but I don't think it's necessarily as PG-13 popcorn blockbuster as 
Denis has talked about in public comments. It's not quite as easily digestible and accessible as a mainstream tentpole usually is. That's, that's just, my thoughts. And I liked it more than you. And it, it's funny because I, I took a friend to the showing. He didn't like it, but his brother did. And neither of them have read the books. So reactions are all over the map. at this yeah. And I think that that is how it is going to be going forward. I think this is going to be a divisive film. On which I do, I do gotta say, sometimes when it, there's just divisive and like battle lines, it makes it more interesting than yeah, when absolutely. everyone's like, This sucks, or this is awesome, and there's like a 90% consensus. and there are going to be things that everyone agrees about. For example, the visuals are incredible. My number, I genuinely thought this, I couldn't believe he shot it on this planet. That's yeah. how <laughs> that's how good it looks. Like, I was I like, agree This completely, like, that is, I mean, that is unfucking believable that it doesn't. You know, we have been watching C- <laughs> CGI-soaked films for 10 years that fucking look like CGI. Buddy, that is not the case here. You feel transported both by the just the pure color tones and aesthetic, but the scope of it all, the size of their ships and the size of their worms. It is mind-blowing. And I'm actually willing to bet if and when I do rewatch it, I will enjoy it more the second time around. Now that I've got a general understanding of the major plot beats and I won't be so focused on, like I'll be able to zoom in on what's happening more because I've already yeah. got the macro picture. And then on second viewing, I will be able to really invest myself more in the micro. But in general, I'm just curious to see if it's commitment to setting itself up for part two rubs people the wrong way. Because I can see it going both ways. And I think to your point and what I think a lot of people might feel, Anyone who reads sci-fi books, I think will tell you those first couple pages, those first couple chapters, when they're throwing unfamiliar jargon at you and they're introducing all, you know, the rules and regulations of this universe and all this sci-fi mumbo jumbo, it's really hard to get into. Even Dune, one of the best-selling, you know, most famous iconic books of all time, those first couple chapters is a fucking snooze, man. And I love this stuff. So I would say the movie parallels that. I hear you though, but. You just said it. This is a movie. This isn't a sci-fi novel. This isn't some sort of dense book. This is a multi, this is a multi tens of million dollar global movie that is, that are meant to be for as many people as possible. That's true. But I think with any franchise, Star Wars, Game of Thrones, anything, those early couple moments are always a little bit difficult for everyone to sink into. Yeah. But that said, you're going to ask me next, where do I rank this among his films, and I like I said at the top, for me, it's bottom, which is just not heartbreaking, but is the complete opposite of what I thought it was going to be. And that hurt. So I think for me, it's above Prisoners and Enemy, but it's below Blade Runner 2049, Sicario, uh, and Arrival. Rival. And I, yeah. yeah, I think I think that's that's the, the English language ones. I think that's Correct. all the English language ones. So I, I still really liked it overall. I think I think it's interesting because we know Villeneuve's last film was Blade Runner 2049, which we both think is a creative masterpiece. They wanted it to be a franchise relauncher with, you know, spinoffs and, and sequels planned, but it bombed at the box office. So how do you think Dune compares and what do you think about its box office prospects? As of right now, it has $130 million at the box office as of this writing. Prior to the pandemic, it needed... 500 million plus to be considered a win with the HBO max component. There's a bit of a safety net and it sounds like from the trades, Warner brothers is hoping 300 million. So this is more your space than mine. So I will cede the floor to you, but let me talk about it in this sense. I think if you are 
interested in Denis Villeneuve or Dune or any of the actors, those people will go out and see it. But if you're a random person who just saw ads for it, endless ads for it on football games and golf events and all over TV, I am not sure that those people are going to be converted $2. And I think that that is sort of the main problem. The barrier of entry seems to be having a pre-existing knowledge of the components of this film. If you don't, I can't imagine seeing that being like, I've got to get out and see Dune. Here's where I think it has going for it uh, in terms of attracting casual observers. These days, you're not always going to get your everyday average moviegoer to buy a ticket or tune in on streaming because you have one star that they like. But when you have like 15 fucking big names that people genuinely like, that does help. And I think a lot of Dune's marketing has been showing off, hey, we've got that guy you like and that girl you like and that guy you like and this person you like. And I think the kind of breadth of talented ensemble cast might actually ring in a few more watches, a few more street. Uh, Which of those names, sales. though, do you think genuinely qualify? As I mean, Oscar Isaac, maybe? Uh, no, I, I think Isaac, Tim, Timmy Shalley, Zendaya, Jason Momoa, I think even um, Josh, Josh Brolin. Uh, you know, Rebecca Ferguson, a little bit, not much, but I think Mission Impossible Fallout re really helped. I, I do think it has enough of a big cast that people enjoy that some some people are going to get hooked based on that alone. And listen, it, we don't it doesn't always mean anything. And we will see. We'll check back in on Sunday. But pre-sales are looking strong for its U.S. domestic opening. So we'll say quick spoiler. So warning, if you don't want to hear this, skip ahead 30 seconds. Pause, pause, pause. The number one casting that I was hyped to see, Zendaya, is barely in the fucking movie. And now, barely. I don't know if you're a book reader. Maybe you saw that coming? Yes. Okay. But okay. remember, I only finished the book minutes before my but screening started. That's fucking bullshit because one of the first trailers, she's the first shot that you see. So they're obviously pulling some marketing tricks here. Definitely. They're, they're definitely selling you something. They're selling this as a, exactly what it is. As a co-led Timmy Zendaya film. And it, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Part two, I'm sure will be. But once I realized, I was like, wait the fuck a minute. She's not in this movie. I was let down. Barely in it. Yeah. That, yeah, that is disappointing. All right. How do you feel about the Denis Villeneuve versus Christopher Nolan debate now that we've seen Dune and Tent? tenant in the last year that's a fascinating thought because denis is approaching that status i'm not sure he has the same blockbuster cachet as no no he doesn't but in terms of pure visual uh, in terms of pure filmmaking i mean how do you say he's not on par at this point what what i mean short of i think what what nolan has a leg up on him at this point is that the dark knight films and i'm not just saying that as a batman guy those those are seminal movies of the last 20 25 years and i'm not sure villeneuve has that yet if he takes on bond next or something he very well could but i just don't think he's quite yet crossed that threshold where he's a household name technically i think he's just as good i don't see how you could really argue against him but in terms of popularity i don't think he's quite there i think technically he's better than nolan maybe nolan so far has has tapped that mainstream, elevated mainstream blockbuster uh, vein a little bit better. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, okay, so Game of Thrones was considered unadaptable. Now it's the most popular show in the world. Dune was considered unadaptable. It failed a couple times on the big screen. Now it could be a hot new franchise. 
what else do you think could go from unadaptable to popular, particularly as sci-fi and fantasy become the most popular genres in all of entertainment? I don't really have a breadth of knowledge on that, so I'd like to hear your thoughts. Uh, I think... You have that one book that you always fucking talk about, right? Lucifer's Hammer, yeah. yeah. It would need to be modernized because it's from the 70s and there's definitely some outmoded kind of cultural aspects. But I, I don't know why it hasn't been turned into a, a massive miniseries for HBO or Netflix. That's the one I was going to bring up now because uh, it, it's just such an enthralling story. I highly recommend everyone see, uh, see it. It's about a comet that hits Earth, but it's much better than Armageddon and Deep Impact. Well, we're about to see the benefits of choosing to take these, quote unquote, unadaptable stories to, to a series instead, as I was reading a report from GQ this week about Wheel of Time. On yeah, Prime. so... Wheel of Time is a massive sprawling book series. I actually haven't read it, but it's like 14 books and counting. I have not loved the early teasers and trailers. I'm not going to lie. It kind of looks a little a little goofy to me. What do you think? Same. But again, I have been proved wrong before. I mean, Thrones, Thrones first few looked kind of goofy too. So <laughs> Fair. Yeah, we got to give it the benefit of the doubt until we see it. All right, let's move in to ask a book reader so we can kind of clear up any miscommunications that might be out there. Because Eric... After we had both had seen it, I asked you point blank if, as a non-book reader, you understood anything that was going on. And in my piece for Observer, as I mentioned, I wrote in depth how this is a shockingly well-constructed piece of cinema that I believe would have non-book readers more or less lost. Uh, A lot of people have obviously read Frank Herbert's novel over the last 60 years, but I still think something may be lost a bit in translation from page to screen. So for further context and and understanding, Are there any specific questions you'd like to ask me? I've got quite a few. All right. And now again, this is probably going to be a more spoiler-esque talk. So if you want to- But I won't get into like really big spoilers. So anyone who's worried about that, this is more so context and understanding for you going into the movie. Okay. What is going on with Paul's visions? Okay. So yes, in the movie, they do describe it, but it's obviously much more fleshed out in the books. Essentially, Paul, when the movie starts, has been having dreams of the future. He dreams things that ha- that are going to happen. Then they happen pretty much as, as you know, he, he dreams them. In the movie, that's kind of more or less where it stops. In the books, once he gets to Arrakis, the spice, that's the most valuable commodity in the universe that is only found on Arrakis. It is kind of a, a, it's a it lengthens your life. It basically allows you to operate at a higher mental frequency. All this really cool kind of, abilities that it gives to people but for paul it unlocks the full potential of his power and he is constantly trying to anchor and orient himself because he cannot differentiate between what is his prescient memory what has he seen the future in the past and what is the actual reality and there's also diverging paths where he sees multiple different futures or something happens not exactly as he's seen it so you can see the kind of massive mental weight that is on him in the books and how unbelievable this power could be if he could kind of learn to navigate it better. And that dovetails uh, nicely with with kind of what's going on around him and the machinations of people trying to use him, which I think we'll get into in this next question. Well, so does that explain why everyone freaks out about him everywhere he goes? Are they aware of these powers? Uh, uh, So to a certain extent. Now, his mother, Lady Jessica, played by Rebecca Ferguson, is a is for lack of a better term, a witch. She is a member of the Bene Gesserit uh, uh, sisterhood, which is a a female order 
with unbelievable powers. They can kind of make people do what they want. They, they are kind of a little bit of a religious order. And long story short, both for tactical reasons and because they have their own prophecy, they have gone around the entire universe for thousands, hundreds of thousands of years saying, hey, this prophet is going to come, this kind of savior, this messianic figure is going to eventually come. And so they've seeded that. So in case a Benny Jesuit witch ever needs help on a, on a random planet, there's already like, oh shit, we got to help this lady, even though we don't right. know her so tactically. But they also have a prophecy that like, you know, long story short, the one is going to come. So when they get to Arrakis and everyone's freaking out everywhere he goes, that's because they know of the prophecy. Gotcha. Okay. Now this is sort of a two-parter. Is there anything going on with the worms beyond them just being this gigantic, badass creatures? And does Paul eventually use the voice to control the worms? Because that was my first thought. So, yes, there is a connection between the worms and the spice that is very intertwined, very important, very central to the book and for the future plot. And again, this is this is not a spoiler whatsoever. And in terms of using the voice, the voice is how uh, like the Benny Gesserit trained people can kind of control people. He does not use the voice on a worm, but I will say there is an interesting relationship with the worms that is going to progress as this story continues. That is very badass and very cool and very dangerous and very frightening. And now refresh my memory a bit. And this one, you didn't write this one down. I did. This one is a bit spoilery. Why is Duke Atreides betrayed? And what is with the resistance to the Atreides family? Are, are the people of Arrakis simply so scared of angering the Harkonnens that they don't want to do business with the Atreides? Like you would think the people of that planet would welcome their relatively benevolent presence as opposed to the other uh, races and houses and clans <laughs> out there. This is a really good question because it speaks right at the heart of, I think, the Dune movie, which is royal court machinations, the political intrigue going on. So House Atreides and House Harkonnen are enemies. They used to be friends thousands of years ago. Now they're the bitterest of enemies. House Harkonnen has ruled over Arrakis, which essentially makes them the richest, most valuable house in all of the Imperium for, I don't know, 70, 80 years, something like that. All of a sudden... The, the, uh, the emperor says, hey, Har House Harkonnen, you're out. House Atreides, you're in. But we don't know if he's doing that for altruistic purposes. We don't uh. know if he is setting up something that is dangerous for House Atreides because the Duke Leto, played by Oscar Isaac, is an increasingly popular figure among the royal houses. The other houses, even though they're not necessarily the, the wealthiest or most powerful house, they've begun to look to him for leadership. And because he's already rivals with House Harkonnen, that creates a natural friction. And we don't exactly know where the emperor stands on this and what his exact uh, kind of motivation is. And that's something you find out throughout the course of the story. And in terms of Arrakis, so the Arrakis natives have basically been oppressed their, almost their entire existence. They don't really see a difference between House Atreides and House Harkonnen. They just say, oh, we've traded one oppressor for another. Great. Okay. Fuck these guys. Okay. They're just saying fuck everyone who's not them because they want to rule themselves, understandably. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So, I mean, overall thoughts on Dune, I think we diverge in a good way and we're aligned in a, in a unique way, too. I'm hoping people 
feel more towards my side of the spectrum than you. And let me also say this. I can guarantee you now I will like Dune Part 2 infinitely more than than Part 1. <laughs> it does seem fact. as if uh, Dune Part 2 is pretty much guaranteed. And Sarnoff, who's the head of uh, Warner Brothers Pictures, said basically as much in some thinly veiled comments today. I mean, the title card of the film is Dune Part 1. So like, <laughs> and, but you know, it, it is still dependent on how well it does, but she said, no, no, they but if they were not. worried, they wouldn't have put the part one in there. They would have just had it say Dune. Why else would you were, you're only setting yourself up to fail. Like why set the expectation of a part two, <laughs> if you're not even sure it's going to happen, you know? Yeah. I think uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out and how commercially and critically. Uh, uh, yeah. I cannot does. wait to see what, the average person thinks i genuinely mean that so if you have thoughts about it please reach us at postcred pod on twitter at eric italiano on twitter and at great underscore catsby on twitter we would love to hear your thoughts about movies and tv in general but this week specifically about dune because i'm fascinated and stay tuned to postcred pod because we have a lot of really cool interviews coming up and great don lee who plays gilgamesh in eternals Jonathan Majors and the How Do They Fall director James Samuel and maybe Zack Snyder. Got to see if we can get uh, Army of Thieves done in time. We have a crowded watching schedule. It's you know? insane. So, so sue us. But the prospect of Zack Snyder being our first ever repeat guest is very know. tempting. So I'm going to try my best <laughs> to get that screener done. All right. So in the meantime, you know, follow us at, at Pod. Leave us a five-star review. And uh, you know, until next week, you guys. And I hopefully enjoy doing more than Yes, please do. So I have some backup. All right, y'all. Peace.